The Nick Holt Podcast. Today I'm joined by three of the country's leading economists, Professor Gigi Foster, Dr Cameron Murray and Professor Paul Freiters. Together, they have almost single-handedly represented the side of economic common sense throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, They took the position as early as March 2020 that indiscriminately locking down both the healthy and the sick was not only bad economic policy, but also bad public health policy. This position was castigated by the medical establishment elites, and they were all but exiled from the economic mainstream consensus. They have co-collaborated on two books, extremely important books, which will act as the foundations of our discussions today. In 2017, Dr Murray and Professor Freiters published Game of Mates, How Favours Bleed the Nation. And in September last year, Professor Foster and Professor Freiters, as well as Michael Baker, published a groundbreaking book titled The Great COVID Panic, What Happened, Why and What to Do Next?, Today we'll be discussing how panic, fear and uncertainty led to the most egregious public policy in Australian history. We'll also be discussing the work of clinical psychologist Dr Matthias Desmond, who gained international interest for his work on mass formation psychosis, a theory that we believe might make sense. Gigi, Paul, Cam, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. So... Cam and Gigi, I've spoken to both of you. Uh, Paul, we have not, but we are now. I guess what I'd start with asking is, based on our discussions all that time ago, have your opinions changed in any way towards the pandemic management? Well, maybe I'll start with that one, Nick. Um, I think we may have spoken, what, maybe a year ago? Yeah, about a year. Roughly. So this was before the production of the Great COVID Panic book that you mentioned. Um, And it was before a lot of the current um, vaccine technology that we've been deploying around the world. It was before... Uh, the sort of end games that we've seen developing now in Scandinavia and in some of the states in, in the US and other regions of the world that have escaped this madness. I would say my view of what has gone on here hasn't changed. The big change that I experienced in this time was actually between March 2020 and about May 2020 when I thought initially that the fear would very quickly fade and we would recover sense and rational, rationality and, and sense-making in our policy would take over. But in fact, what happened was the creation of these COVID crowds. And that was something I did not anticipate, which is one of the reasons why um, in my work with Paul and Michael, we've focused very much on the crowd dynamic. We have a whole chapter devoted to crowd psychology. Um, in what is really an economics or social scientific treatise about this period. And it's because that's really where the most learning for me has occurred. Um, So, yeah, I I don't think I've really changed my opinions. I have, it has become very clear to me that what I previously thought intellectually about things like power and group influence are just incredibly important and and woefully understudied in our disciplines and woefully under-acknowledged in the building of our institutions. And so we need to have a renewed focus on the power of power and how to manage it in uh, a way that limits the damage that it can cause. So um, I don't think I've changed my opinion, but uh, definitely very focused now on the future. And Kim, have you moved away also from the economic side of things onto more of the moral psychology side of things in terms of uh, what Gigi's just mentioned? I would say I've, I've been on a fairly similar journey. Uh, I think we, we both initially thought the panic couldn't last, um, that this is just, you know, a news cycle worth of, uh, you know, action that we're going to see on, on the COVID policy. I think the first thing I wrote about COVID was... Uh, in two to three weeks, people will come to their senses, realise the costs of locking down and what we're sacrificing and understand our limited ability to actually control this type of virus. And, and I was completely wrong. And, and like uh, Gigi said, I underestimated uh, the momentum of the crowd uh, that got you know, extremely focused on this one topic for so long. I, I, I completely underestimated how long it would last and how easily such a broad range of society would buy into that story. Um, yeah, so, so that, that was the big lesson for me. But I think in terms of 
what was the right thing to do in terms of overall health and well-being for the society i think it's probably like paul and gigi i think my i've been my initial thoughts have been reinforced by events um that what we the approach we took was was wrong and and enormously costly to human well-being Okay, I want to come back to crowd psychology uh, shortly, but before we do that, Paul, what's your trajectory uh, been from the beginning of the pandemic to now in terms of how you felt about the decisions that were being made, uh, whether or not you thought that those decisions were going to uh, become more sensible, and what you think now? Um, Well, I'm, of course, very like-minded with Cam and Gigi, so I too was flabbergasted that we have a lockdown as it were. I was in London at the time and it felt like 1984, right? When there was double speak coming in, right? Uh, Stay at home, don't exercise, don't have any social life. And the notion that that would be good for your health was sort of, you know, blared out uh, in all the media. And I was sort of like, this is 1984, you know, come on, this is is about the worst thing you could do for health, right? Uh, And that's been the standing advice for 20 years. And now suddenly we pretend the opposite. and like Cam and Gigi, um, I was amazed that it kept on going and that, in a sense, the madness only strengthened. And it took me quite a while to get around this notion of crowd formation, or as some uh, of the medics now call it, mass psychosis. Um, this obsession with something small and making it into something huge. Um, in terms of what happened further in my intellectual development of this year, um, trying to work out what happens, trying to work out the economic groups that formed as a result of this, trying to understand what happened to academia, you know, my, my beloved university world, which by and large uh, went along with this madness, although there were hundreds of thousands of brave academics throughout the world who stood up, uh, but were shouted down less so by their colleagues, but much more by the enormous might of sort of internet censorship, government, uh, institutionalized medicine, I wouldn't say so much real scientists, but uh, much more people with hands-on levers of power and media. There's this sort of coming together of a group um, that that sorts chance to boss us all around, um, and that the you know as it, the intellectual consensus of 50 years was just not able to stand against that. Even though you know the Great Barrington Declaration was a fantastic effort to sort of bring scientific sense back to the debate, um, and what has struck me most uh, in terms of surprises the last year or so is that. It's been slow to get resistance going. Brave people, new people keep speaking out. Just yesterday I read another piece by somebody who was a member of the SAGE committee in, in, in the UK who, you know, for two years was saying that they were doing sensible and now he basically came to exactly the same conclusion as ours and said, well, we shouldn't have done this. This is a huge overreaction. We didn't take the cost into account. This has all been madness. Um, but that nevertheless, this train keeps on going, not wanting to see sense in terms of the damage that's still being done, particularly on the third world. Right? There's, the Australians are slowly waking up to the cost that they are impringing on their own children. But the notion that they've been co-responsible for uh, millions, certainly, maybe tens of millions of deaths in the third world war, that's, world, uh, third world, that's just not, not in the public debate whatsoever. Right? It's sort of like... Well, these are people we don't care about. Right? Yeah. Who cares how many of those dies? I mean, does, does anybody even know in the Australian public debate what happened to world food prices or what will happen to extremely poor people if you lock them up in their uh, ghettos and, uh, and tell them that they can't come out for two months? Well, they haven't got any food, you know. What do you think happens to that, right? Mm-hmm. And you can call them COVID deaths when they bring out the body bags, but really you've, you've sort of... Um, it made them a die of starvation or, or of, uh, you know, the fights that then break out. And so uh, looking forward, yeah, the, the question is uh, what kind of reform agenda should we be looking at? And also is there some sort of long-run resistance now needed to a, a new reality of, a, of an authoritarian group which will try to push us from sort of one scary story to another? You know, this is what largely what Gigi and I and Cam have spoken about on our episodes of the podcast, and I feel like we were reaching for um, some something more of a solid hypothesis of what could cause such irrationality. Uh, how do you tackle that in your book? So one of the really interesting phenomena during this period, and particularly right now, is that people around the world look for a single cause or a, a grapplable 
phenomenon that they can then place the blame on and say, this is why, or this is what. So you may have seen, for example, there are bunches of people who now blame Klaus Schwab and the World Economic <laughs> Forum for everything, right? Or, or they, they blame, you know, Pfizer, they've been, you know, planning depopulation for 20 years or, or whatever it is. And that, that is very seductive um, because we have limited minds, limited capacity. We're extremely angry and despairing and sad about what's happened. So there's an eagerness and an appetite to find something that we can grab onto and say, this is why. And as a corollary of that, this is, you know, if we excise this part, then everything will be fine and it won't happen again. Mm -hmm. One of the real confronting realities of this period is that it has been a function, what we have seen, this destruction we've seen, has been a function of multiple overlapping dynamics, none of which is going to be easily solved. And there's no one culprit. There's not even an evil bunch of, you know, 20 or 200 that we could simply assassinate and then we would be all clean and pure and we wouldn't have this happen again. The problem is we've seen what humans are capable of in contexts where power goes unchecked, where diversity of thought is squelched and cancelled, where there's a high concentration of uh, sort of control and power and uh, profiteering amongst the media, amongst companies, and even amongst bureaucracies and governments, and where the people simply don't know enough and are so uh, vulnerable because of their fear that they're manipulable on a wide scale, a vast scale within countries. And so we've just seen a lot of different overlapping dynamics. And in the book, we try to cover m the ones that we feel are most relevant by uh, using a chapter-by-chapter -chapter exposition. We try to make it readable by starting out uh, you know, with, with sort of exp an exposition of what it was to live in, in 2020 in, in March, to feel the fear rising in societies and, uh, and, and to, to really understand that for, the, for future generations we put this on paper because it's just an un unimaginable kind of uh, you know t period to be alive really um, and we have a, a literary device of using three characters through whose eyes we tell the story of the great panic in three stages but apart from that sort of literary aspect and the the, the chronology of the three stages we also run through different social scientific phenomena which we feel have been important and certainly crowd psychology is in there also the dynamics of power um, also the the failures of science which is something we haven't really um, you know reckoned with certainly in economics we've not yet had a real stock take of how badly we got this wrong as a profession and in other sciences as well there, there has been this cancel culture which has given rise to uh, an inability to engage with different ideas about how we could grapple with a particular threat uh, or a particular problem and that's really been to our de detriment and we've gotten very very stupid very fast at the political level because of that monoculture. So we talk about how the monoculture is supported by concentration of power. Um, we talk about some historical analogies. We have even a chapter on viruses and how they spread for those who would like to know um, from a more objective standpoint. Um, and so, you know, and then we conclude with uh, what can we do going forward. But we have no mathematical model in there, even though we're economists. Um, we have, you know, no formalism really. We're just trying our best to pick out the elements that are the most important that have really sort of come together in a, in a morass to create what we've seen during this period. Yeah, and I think you can't obviously, there's no mathematical equation for human nature, but you can certainly zoom back and take a look at this perhaps from a, you know, a, a keyhole perspective and... I think it would be fair to argue that, that other other ingredients were in place too. And one of those ingredients was the breakdown of social cohesion. Perhaps I'll start with Paul and then hit to Cam. Is, yeah, this sort of public policy in terms of economics and um, well-being for society, how uncommon is it for it to become this embedded into personal lives and households? Um, can I ask what you mean by that? You said um, the breakdown of family. You mean before this panic or yeah, the last, due to the, the last 50 years? So. Policies, yeah. Um, I sort of have difficulty with, with any story that blames what has happened on anything particular in Western society, um, whether that would be the supposed or actual breakdown of families or whether that's supposed to... Um, the rising inequality in the West, or whether that's supposed to the advent of a particular social media channel or of a, a particular stream in politics. And, th and the reason I find that difficult is because the panic was worldwide. 
It didn't start in the West. Uh, it started in China, and there was a panic there, despite the fact that that's a fairly authoritarian regime. It then went to Japan and South Korea, not exactly friends of China, but nevertheless, they too went into panic mode. Um, uh, Singapore, uh, it then spread through the north of Italy, where you know families are perfectly functional. Uh, one of the first places to lock down is Denmark. Well, it's about the most happy, sensible place on the planet. And so any sort of simple notion of, well, this, this is because this particular aspect in, in our society broke down before, it, it just doesn't seem to hold up to scrutiny. So I do think it likely that the circumstances in every particular country will have changed the trajectory somewhat there and that it's reflected in their policies and might have aggravated things uh, somewhat more or dictated how quick the bounce back was. Um, but I, I, I don't see any sort of underlying narrative of, well, you know, this went uh, wrong previously and hence we were susceptible to the panic. No, we humans are, are essentially like dogs in these kind of panic situations. We sort of get excited as a crowd and we infect each other. And those who can escape from that are very, very few and far between. And the vast majority of us just get swept up. And it has, unfortunately, nothing to do with IQ or EQ even. <laughs> right? We, yeah, we yeah. just are like dogs, you know. <laughs> yeah. that's, perhaps not. That's what it's like. Sure. <laughs> perhaps not blame. Um, perhaps I, I think I was more, I, I agree with what you said. Uh, I, I'm more looking at some of the um, social dynamics in terms of people dobbing others in for not wearing masks. Um, the, the breakdown of um, community, you know, yes. turning on each other and, Yes. Is this part of the, the the general panic for you that you think could exist at any stage in history? Um, yes, I do think it's it's part of that sort of general crowd formation. But also, there's another unfortunate aspect to it, which is that we, we humans are not, as I like to say, fluffy bunnies. There are all kinds of nasty impulses in us, and uh, given you can give in any society uh, a, a sort of. Uh, the option of dobbing in your neighbours or ratting them out or sort of belittling them or starting to boss them around. And you'll be amazed how quickly people sort of turn on their neighbours, lifelong friends, and become very bossy and authoritarian. And that that, that is just stunning. And one of my favourite examples of this is, uh, is when the, the Nazis and the Soviet Union carved up Poland. So it was a victim society. And, you know, they sort of killed many Polish soldiers. Um, and then, you know, the Nazis instigated the policy whereby they, they wanted to get rid of the Jews in Poland and others. And, you know, neighbours were standing in queue to sort of, you know, dob in their Jewish neighbours, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Extraordinary. So, exactly. And uh, I wouldn't say that family values had suffered in Poland before 1939, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, when authoritarianism comes in and appeals to these aspects of human nature that we're quite willing to boss around our closest if we have the chance because you know in in each of us uh, houses a little dictator yeah i'm afraid that's universal right in in china too you have neighborhood committees uh, you you, yeah we're entering a very deep element of moral psychology there to try and understand the end and i certainly don't have that uh, accreditation on the wall cam (laughs) cam what's what are your thoughts on this topic yeah well uh, what paul was just saying um it reminded me of the those uh, experiments we we ran during my PhD, and we, um, you know, we gave people photos of each other. We we essentially wrote a computer game, and people could form groups in that game and steal money off off other people that were playing somewhere else in the room on another computer. And and yeah, none of those sort of socio demographic religious factors seemed to change um, how people played. Everyone was seduced to find a group and form an alliance and look after their mates at the expense of others. Um, and, and we sort of um, extracted that out of people in you know 45 minutes on a computer game when there was real money on the line. So you can imagine when you're being bombarded day by day, um, you know, people are reinforcing it in your neighbourhood uh, and then you start selectively deciding who to chat with in your neighbourhood who agrees with you and st- you stop chatting with those who don't. It, it, it it spirals uh, very, very quickly. And in fact, I'm still very aware that even today, maybe not all of your audience actually sees the panic of COVID the way we do. Probably many people listening think we're all crazy. You know, look at all the lives we've saved doing what we did. What kind of 
you know, grandma killers are you? <laughs> yeah. You know, that was They've the term. They've switched off that, by now. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they've switched off your podcast, but you know, if this was, if this was just uh, broadcast to the community, a yeah. large pro- proportion are still in that mindset. They're, they're still, you know, very happily motivated to check vaccine passports, totally. get you to wear your masks, all that sort of stuff. They're, they're still into it, and uh, I think it's another lesson is the misreading of this dynamic by many sort of like-minded people who see the abuses of power. Um, that misreading is that um, the politicians did this because they're nasty, evil people and they did it against the will of the people. But that's not true. You know, all the, all the tough guy politics polled really well. The elections in Western Australia was the highest uh, majority uh, win for, uh, for years or perhaps forever, I think, um, during the toughest lockdowns nearly in the world. So this was really about the crowd and the politicians sort of reflecting and becoming part of it, not um, not simply, you know, there's a, an opportunity to exert control uh, and there's these, you know, calculated scheming politicians behind it all. I think that was a, you know, that's a, a misinterpretation of, of what's been happening. It's possible. It's possible that these people do also thrive off the fear of how the their voting constituency works if they say if i can get votes from fear correct am i morally good enough to not do that or to do it that's i don't have the answer i I just see it as an option on the table for what happened well maybe paul and gigi see it slightly different but i just see them as part of the crowd Right. right and and you know they they have a role they have their own personal networks and uh, you know, my prediction would be if if there was an area where it polled well to not lock down, then you wouldn't get locked down. Um, and I think a lot of the opening up has been poll driven. You know, the science sure. was always the politics. Paul, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with Cam that the politicians sort of sensed that there was a crowd forming. And they, they sort of decided to lead it, if you like, right, in order to stay in power and keep popular. And you do see the, pop- the politicians who didn't lead it so much, like Morrison, sort of suffering electorally for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say other things about this too. One is you saw a lot of opportunism, so there was a lot of abuse of power as well, because in this situation there was a lot of money that could be given away, of course, to mates. And there was a lot of sort of you know, self-aggrandizing, so a lot of grabbing of democratic powers and... Uh, ruling by fiat and ruling by diktat. Um, but there's also something else, which is uh, how should we as a society treat this kind of behavior? Should we say, well, they went mad with the rest of us and so they didn't do anything criminal? Or should we say, well, yeah, maybe they went bad, uh, mad with the rest of us, but they're the ones who did the deed. And at the end of the day, our, our, our legal, our criminal system is set up to say, look, if you did the crime, you're responsible. It doesn't matter if people were egging you on or not. Mm. The buck stops with you. You should have had the calm, rational mind that was there in, uh, for the population as a whole. And if then somebody says, well, but then you wouldn't have gotten elected, well, then the answer should be, well, but you're not a politician to be re-elected. You're a politician in order to do the right thing and to stick by, uh, by the laws. And so I still think we should go after them as criminals. Right? We should basically sure. d- keep them responsible for what they've done. And sure, I have all kinds of explanations of why. I can perfectly understand it. But, y- you know. Yeah. And, and people don't fully... Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, th- there must still be punishment for crimes done because otherwise there's no incentive next time not to do it again. And many of the people that saw this as strength and continue to say, fantastic job, they don't understand the crimes because mm-hmm. it didn't affect them, right? I mean, some of the stories I've reported on involve heavily involve child uh, abuse, child self-harm, child suicide, and I'm not talking to crackpots. I'm talking to the CEO of Kids Helpline. I'm talking to these people. Not only were those statistics not mm-hmm. being promoted, they were being squashed as lies as well. And this was known beforehand. So this is premeditated crime. 
right? Uh, because we, we know, particularly in Britain, there were all kinds of learned reports from inside the bureaucracy and saying, look, you're going to have these and these problems. And they're going to be much worse in terms of lost lives, lost well-being, lost health yep. than what you say you're trying to save. And so that's basically, as a politician, you're then choosing to do something which the best advice around you is this will cost lives. It is then a medical experiment that you're into. You're running out of propaganda machine. I mean, what do we call that? A crime, yes, I yes, think, yes. Right? It's the, almost like the, the term crime has been redefined as well. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you, you just brought up a great point, and I want to go to Gigi on this for um, your thoughts. And I've wondered about it too. Uh, let's assume that the politicians in charge were caught up in the crowd to begin with. Is there a point there you think that they separated from the crowd and realised that they were no longer in it themselves, but the crowd still existed. Look, I, I don't think you can say as a general rule for the whole class that everyone acted the same way. I think I see, I mean, comparing Cam's and Paul's views of this, I, I see elements of each. I do think that people like, for example, Dan Andrews and Mark McGowan have, they have allowed themselves to rationalize the actions that they have taken for what are corely opportunistic reasons, and they enjoy the power so much that they are not facing consciously now, um, you know, every day when they get up in the morning, oh yeah, these are the costs that I've, that I've mm. inflicted and I've gotten very little benefit for the people, but that's fine, I'm fine, you know, no problem, full speed ahead. That's not what's happening, right? These are not people who, who have no moral compass, who could face that sort of thing and actually keep going, you know, consciously and keep going. Mm. It's much more, I, I feel, a, a much more palatable and much more feasible for the human organism to rationalize and justify using any number of brilliant, you know, lies that will be come up with by themselves, by the sycophants that surround them, by the medical establishment that was right there ready to provide them with excuses for why what they were doing was saving lives, um, you know, even by their constituents, right? And these, mm. these people are not stupid. They've got big brains. Many of our economist colleagues were amongst those who were becoming apologists for these kinds of actions. And so the politicians had ready excuses for why uh, it was okay to do what they were doing. And, you know, gosh, how conveniently they were able to get more power and, and more status and, and, and more money in many cases as well. So, you know, I think the same kinds of dynamics will have been in play in previous historical examples of people in charge who have done horrific things. They are not fully aware consciously that they are monsters at that moment, mm. right? Because that would be unsustainable psychologically. There are reasons and rationalizations. And in Western societies, this rationalization of it's good for public health was very powerful, it was very hard to resist, and the population went along with it because what they were scared of was what they thought was a health threat. And so it, it, it was a very convenient narrative to, to play, it, it fit the bill, and, um, you know, and, and I think it'll take many years until those politicians, if they ever do, really recognize the crimes that they have committed, and there will be innumerable rationalizations still to come. Yeah, and I think a lot of that began, at least I saw it begin in Wuhan. I was at my parents' place at the time and, you know, there was chatter of this pandemic. And then all, all of a sudden these six sort of unverified iPhone videos emerged of Chinese people collapsing on the street, uh, Chinese doctors in hazmat suits with guns, people getting welded into their apartment. And, yeah, you know, I said to mum and dad, this is bullshit. I don't know why, but I don't know what's going on, but that's nonsense. And then the wave began, right? Because I'd been watching many of these mass um, media productions globally, right? That that are real. Like you take a school shooting, they then capture that perfectly and disseminate it across the West. It makes for tragedy news, and people all of a sudden have an opinion on gun control, and they're scared because they're scared. So we saw this happen very quickly, right? Now this seg. This segues me into uh, what I want to talk about now for a while, and that's, of course, Dr. Matthias Desmet's mass formation psychosis theory. Uh, for my listeners, he'll be joining the program uh, sometime in March. We're still working out a date on that, but I'll let you know. So one thing he says is that under these conditions of fear floating anxiety and uncertainty 
people are susceptible to be let because they want that fear to be gone. And that creates a sort of a tunnel vision on whatever that point is, which he refers to as being almost like hypnosis. Another thing he says, and I'll let you guys talk on this more than me, but he says that while people are underneath this hypnosis, it's the more absurd the measures get, the more likely people are to follow them, right? We've gone from let's just flatten the curve and it'll be a short, sharp, three-day lockdown <laughs> to being locked. I can't go to a restaurant right now because I'm not vaccinated. I mean, that's extraordinary. It's, it has to be some sort of psychosis. Who, who, who wants to talk first on this? Well, I can just give an entree. Um, so one of the things about this phrase mass formation psychosis is that it sounds really flash, sounds really um, sophisticated, and it sounds like something that the everyday guy, you know, is not likely to succumb to because it's a psychosis and that this is really a mental illness happening at the, at the time. Right? Mm. Um, now, if you think that that's really true, then, then whenever people focus very strongly on one thing, forget about the importance of everything else and bind with others together in a, in a group, all focused on that one thing, then is that, is that a social, social disease? Is that a psychological disease? I mean, we see that at sports teams, for example, sports, um, you know, when you go to a stadium or something and you're watching your team play and, you know, everybody around you is cheering them on and you're cheering them on and, oh my gosh, you feel, you know, you feel high in that moment, right? Because it's a sense of group power and all that matters right then is that that guy gets the goal, right? And, and then we go home to our families and, you know, Sometimes it leads uh, to a riot. <laughs> Sometimes right? it does lead to a riot. Right, yeah. In the, yeah, in the stadium. Well, you know, Paul knows about that having been in the UK. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that is not abnormal human behavior, right? That is normal human behavior. So I think that's the thing maybe that, that gets missed out a little bit. Again, it's this notion of, okay, there is, a, there is a good human, and then there's the mass, you know, psychosis thing, and that's the, sort of a bad part, and we want to excise that. If we can just excise that, then everything will be fine. Well, no. What we need to do is recognize that that's possible whenever we're vulnerable to uh, to, to believing something is, is threatening us, to being so scared of that thing, or to just being caught up in a wave of, you know, this is the way to go. We have to do this. You know, whether you're talking about the witch hunts or, um, you know, the, the, the Nazi Germany stuff or the COVID. Um, and uh, that we need to be able to cope with that mechanism, foresee it, and and give it less power somehow make it you know be able to manage it in a way that is healthier for our societies rather than have it co-opt as it has done during this period so many of the institutions that are actually supposed to be protecting us including you know the public health system for example so yeah i i, I do think what we talk about in our book crowd psychology it's not it's not as fancy pants as uh, crowd formation psychosis, um, but we are basically <laughs> talking about the same kind of thing, and and it's really a beautiful rediscovery for us as social scientists because it's something that we don't teach anymore in social science schools. I mean, I never learned anything about this when mm. I was studying, either as an undergraduate or a graduate student, um, and I took a pretty broad social science degree. You know, I took I took sociology, including sociology, and you know, intro sociology had a little bit about you know maybe there's some you know crowds and stuff, but there was there was really nothing like the emphasis on it that um that i think you know we could we could very justifiably put going forward so i'm hopeful that we will have a bit of a, a re-emergence of the recognition of that of the importance of that and power and these other kinds of dynamics that have played such a big role during this period paul what do you think is so significant about mass formation psychosis in relation to what we've just been talking about mm. um well i i agree with uh, Gigi that I in a way De Smet uh, from Belgium, um, who sort of came out quite early and courageously said, look, this is some sort of mad group process that has gone on, and he named it mass psychosis, and we name it crowds. Um, and mass psychosis has this medicalization in it, and crowds has this kind of notion of, well, this is uh, a part of group behavior. It's kind of like almost a mode of group behavior which humans can get into and out of. Right? Uh, and so in that sense, it's it's part of behavior that... Uh, people are likely to experience in their life, whereas I hope not everybody experiences uh, a, a psychosis in their life, uh, uh, at least not one on their own. Um, so I, I think his description of sort of how people felt, uh, what it's individually like, uh, are, are spot on. Right? 
So I like his descriptions, and I think also that his uh, his analysis of how this binds people together and how difficult it is to get groups out of this together and how how, as it were, useless it is to rationally try to talk to people uh, who are in, in that kind of crowd state, as we call it, mass psychosis state, is, is true, right? Which is, uh, which is one of the reasons why I almost immediately in March 2020 sort of gave up on talking to people in the crowd because I saw, okay, no, this is like bouncing off Teflon, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what you talk about, it, it'll be brought back to, you know, uh, but what about the hospital numbers in Ouagadougou, right? As if, you know, that is an excuse to sort of imprison the whole population. Um, and and so it, 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 it his point that, okay, you know, people wear off at the edges and that we should sort of see this as a, as a, as a, as a deep problem that is had by a whole group um, and treated as that, I agree with. What, what I disagree with him a little bit is, A, the word, uh, but B also, he he weaves into his theory some notion that there was already something deeply wrong with Western society. And that's why we were uh, willing to go uh, into this mass psychosis. And I have problems with that, again, because the panic is just worldwide. We all fell for it. And so, you know, we were nearly all dogs going... <laughs> Uh, mm. And so we, we should demystify this a little bit, right? And... and in that sense, um, he still, as Gigi says, uh, allows for this notion that we could do without this in our psychology. Well, no, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you disagree um, with his perception that around 30% of people are under this sort of hypnosis? Yeah, I think, it, let's put it like this, in uh, May 2020, 90% was in this, right? Yep. Not 30, 90%. Even now in Australia, what, 60 70, you know, we're still talking, the vast majority is totally in favour of this. And I just spoke to a, a good friend today, for instance, and as soon as the topic of COVID went up, it was like it was like his eyes flashed, right? It was kind of like every argument on, you know, the millions of deaths or the things that they had done to their own children or to their elderly or to health was immediately, as it were, uh, counterbalanced by, oh, but, you know, what about hospital rates in Norway? Or what about, you know, and the whataboutism, whataboutism is always going back to this focus, always going back to the, as if that's worth, you know, yeah, killing lots yeah, of yeah. people for, and almost axiomatically, you know, it, there's no real engagement with that wider picture. There's just obsession. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, no, the majority is still in that to some it, degree. It's quite, it's quite sad too because, you know, uh, people that I, that I love, uh, they will be fine until the media ratchets up the, the fear and then it's as if they become uh, irrational because Morals. they're afraid. And <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> as, if, as, <laughs> I, as I said, people, people in my life who I love that I don't pay for their love. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I know, I know. But some people do become morons, right? Mm-hmm. And these morons also are the ones that will become bad contributors to social society in terms of we said calling the police. Look, for example, uh, I just been contacted by someone in Victoria with footage and a letter. He had the police called on him from a church that he's been going to for five years, and he wasn't wearing a mask, but he had an infection on his face and had a valid exemption. The church called the police. There's no now. I think that I want to go to Cam here. Now I think that this is. Not that, not because of the the church factor, just because I haven't spoken to you in a little bit. Um, but what Paul was saying there, uh, this sixty odd percent figure, uh, do you see that as something that will fluctuate with fear? And where do you think we're at at the moment? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's still the majority in my view from my experience uh, out and about in Brisbane. Uh, most people are still happy to comply. They feel like there's a reason. But to be honest, I, I feel like it's going to wind up when people just get exhausted f- from it. One by one, people are just going to say, well, that I've had enough. I don't have a reason for it. I didn't really have a reason to support it in the first place. Um, and they'll just um, see others. And it will be that sort of process of people observing others, you know, Giving up on it and then and then moving along. Um, I've got a you know a couple other comments on on this psychosis and and the the normality of of crowd behaviour and group behaviour in, in people. 
and and I guess that what I what I think is important is that to to counteract this behavior you also almost need to create your own group or crowd like the protest movements we're seeing they also have some of these sim- similar elements of groups mm. and coordinating and binding people together mm. and that and, and so I don't think um, you know you can you can um, dissolve a crowd without at least having alternatives um, alternative ways for people to feel like they belong and, and satisfy that um, that instinct that we all have to be part of the crowd and have a reason and a purpose so I, I think it's you know that's where I think when you when you cast your mind to long-term solutions for avoiding crowds and panics that are hugely costly in the future you need to think about can we design institutions where we let um, different groups compete for ideas and and debate and 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 create that tension between them to stop that one uh, sort of crowd forming and steamrolling the rest so so I want to go back to what Cam was talking about in relation to crowds and groups. So um, Paul and I have a previous book from 2013 called An Economic Theory of Greed, Love, Groups and Networks. And in that book, we talk about group types, various different group types. Now, we don't talk about crowds, at least much, as I recall. Um, but we do talk about sort of different types of groups, including um, hierarchies, including groups of reciprocity, circles of reciprocity, we call them. And, and, and I, I just think it's important to draw the distinction between a kind of normal functioning human group and a crowd, right? So we do see many normal functioning human groups in society all the time, right? Our families are like that. Corporations, you know, companies, uh, a work team, um, a social soccer team, whatever. Uh, and these are, these are not groups that are, uh, that are crowds because everybody in there, even though they subscribe to some kind of common idea about what are we here for what are we in this group for and you know what are we trying to achieve and and what is everybody going to contribute towards that they don't just focus on one obsessive thing and ignore the value of everything else that is important in life right so so a family is not just obsessively focused or at least a healthy functional family on you know we've we've got to make sure that you know jesse gets his piano lessons everything else you know it doesn't matter as long as jesse gets to piano every single day you know for an hour he has to do this thing that you know if everybody is truly subscribed to that that's a dysfunctional family group because you're forgetting about you know julie's violin lessons the need to put food on the table the fact that somebody's got to mow the lawn you know the the car needs to be washed you know the laundry needs to be done right so these multiple different uh perspectives and objectives and values about different things in life are normal and they're accepted and recognized by people who are functioning in normal groups a crowd, though, is is innately something that is uh, f- focused on one thing, and everything that that normally matters is kind of pushed aside. So we saw this, for example, in the witch hunts, right? So the the amount of resources that were spent on you know f- ferreting out these women, trying them, quote unquote, getting the witnesses to talk about them, and then having these uh, you know these trials that that ended up and you know basically making them be burned at the stake, right? I mean, it's it's horrible, but it's an amazing amount of of social resource that was put towards this one thing, forgetting about the fact that these people were sisters and daughters and mothers and they were productive resources in the society. They could have been used for other things and there's, you know, other people who loved them who were being affected by this fact. Uh, Nobody cared about any of that stuff, right? In that that Mm. very, very strong focus on one thing. So that difference between the regular crowd, uh, regular group, and uh, the kind of crowd that we've seen during this period, I think, is important. And in terms of what fraction of people are now still caught up in it, I, I, I agree in Australia, it's definitely the majority. Um, how do we get people out of it? I have found that it's very much like Charles Mackay, the sociologist from long ago, said that it's really people wake up one by one. It's not that we can expect a quick turning about, you know, that, oh, yeah, now that we know, you know, some paper gets published on the, the cost of lockdowns. This or, is the book, uh, popular, popular Delusions and the Madness, madness of, of Crowds. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and so it's that one by one thing, which means it's going to be a very long haul for people in Western countries to recover their senses. And it, it, these kinds of podcasts, I hope, help. You know, if you reach 10 people individually and, and get them to listen to the end and, and challenge what maybe what they're thinking and then maybe have a conversation over the dinner table with their partner, I mean, that's the sort of slow process that I think we're inevitably in for. Yeah, because I think there's an energy between the crowds and, and the groups. And I mean in this way is that 
the crowd will influence and put pressure on groups, good groups, wholesome groups as we spoke about. And I've seen this with my friendship circles that have, in their own words, caved and got the vax because they're everyone in their group got it. Now, the pressure from the group internally wouldn't have happened without the mass group, right? So my concern is that this kind of, for lack of a better term, psychosis, as we've said, um, is influenced by the media that we consume and how they disseminate with or, with or without doing it um, for nefarious reasons. Let's just say they think it's good news, mm-hmm. so they globally transmit it. I think we'll see these... I think we have seen these crowds and groups uh, occur as a result of Black Lives Matter and climate change. Black Lives Matter in particular, um, another event where the narrative was not even close to the st- statistical reality. Uh, how, do we, how do we address that? Um, well, I think I would see those as alternative wannabe big crowds. <laughs> um, but I, I think that looking forward, um, a different lens is useful to sort of think of where we will go. I think now it's useful to be the power politicians when looking ahead, and thinking about, okay, the groups now in power in various countries and the coalitions of money that are now behind them, what is in their interest? Um, what are their instruments for pushing us into a further obsession or a different obsession? Anything to keep us from wanting revenge. Anything to keep us from asking where did the money go? Uh, why is much more of the wealth now in the hands of the few? Um, what has happened to our children? Uh, anything from that. And so that is pure old-fashioned greed and self-interest. And so for that, you don't need to be a, um, a psychologist or a medic or even an economist or a sociologist. For that, yeah, just brutal power politics will do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and they, uh, I fear, we will be in for a long ride in years to come whereby they will go from one thing to the other, uh, whatever is needed, really. And so particularly if they do start to feel the heat of their own position on the fret, yeah, we can expect all kinds of things. You know, we can expect zero carbon. We might uh, see a, a further outbreak of identity politics. We might see Black Lives Matter being brought back, although that sort of seems more of a done deal. Maybe war, Russia, war maybe Russia, China. Yeah. You know, well, R- Russia's sort of rather small, geopolitically speaking, so maybe China, you know, is more of a worthy opponent. and That sort of stuff. Right? Keep the population in that. Exactly, or at least enough of the population. Um, So that you sort of run away from justice, if you like. And look, there's an awful lot of money now at stake for them and an awful lot of power, and these are not dumbos. And I I do think in that sense, to go back to your question, do I think the politicians have woken up? Oh, yeah. I think the politicians are no longer crowd members. They they Agreed. were at the start, but I think no. They they they've now are. Uh, they've they've run their focus group. They've they've seen around and they've talked to their lawyers. <laughs> they they are now behaving quite rationally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, you know, and while we don't, I think you're correct to blame say everything on on Klaus Schwab. We also don't want to give these people a free pass because he's been very very public while we've all been getting our bread and circuses. He's been very public about what that WEF, UN, WHO sort of – and it's not a group of uh, Dr. Evils in a room. This is almost a – it's an ideology of – it's a new kind of global – it's globalism, right? Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I I agree with Paul that uh, there's going to be huge incentives for anybody who has been complicit during this time in any way, on any forum, whether you're talking about that kind of ideology pushing or just promulgation of the narrative or politicians who were making the decisions to lock down or chief health officers who were providing the scientific ammunition for those politicians to come up with reasons why it was, you know, not foreseen at the time, we couldn't have known, or, you know, oh, we had to try, you know, we couldn't just sit there and let it run over us. There's going to be so many different excuses to try to distract away from the need for justice. And 
And I don't expect, based on previous historical examples, that there is going to be full justice, right? Most of the damage that's been shouldered, which has been shouldered more like, you know, disproportionately by those who are already disadvantaged, most of those of that damage is not going to go recognized. It's not going to go paid back. It's not going to be reimbursed. It's not going to be compensated. It's just, it's happened. And it will continue to happen. And the best that we can hope for is there will be some kind of... Uh, imprimatur from the society on an institution that says we'd like to look into this and and have some kind of reckoning, a truth commission, probably a royal commission here, but I'm not sure that that would necessarily mm. produce that much, but at least a uh, an attempt to reckon with what's happened and that maybe a few people might face some jail time. Yeah. That's about it. And I don't think it'll be Klaus Schwab. In Australia, it's much more likely to be someone like oh, yeah, know, they don't Dan Andrews or whoever. I think these people would rather go to war with Russia than face a jury of their peasants, as they would see it. Absolutely. Cam, um, in terms of game of mates, mm. I think that what Gigi's just been talking about there is very relevant. Mm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how that book explains the dynamic between politician so i believe you give the name james well in the book james is our well-connected individual a politician a business leader a union leader someone who sits on a board of a bunch of superannuation companies or something like that um, and james uh, plays a social game of uh, trading favors amongst his network and in the process um, using the discretion that him and his mates have over the resources of society um, reallocate the wealth towards them and away from the rest of us. And uh, our every man is called Bruce, uh, the, the typical Aussie who misses out. Um, yeah, I think uh, the COVID experience is sort of, you know, it's it's very tricky. I think just because it's been such a global panic and and there's been, it's hard to say this this network, you know, had these incentives. It was, it, you know, at the very beginning, it was just all out panic and, and crowds um, but but definitely later on you can see that with you know the pressure from the population to th throw some money around to do something that you saw these networks activate and then create an interest in keeping things the the new order as it was mm -hmm. so you know w one example is is Queensland's just finished a quarantine uh, camp uh, at Toowoomba um, and the borders are fully open and all restrictions end next week, right? Like we've just – and, of course, that's a secret contract with a well-connected Toowoomba family, the Wagners. Wagners, yeah. And, uh, and you know, we've, we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars uh, on, on all sorts of things, on all sorts of medical procurement, these camps. Um, we've sort of almost paid off the hotels with hotel quarantine because we shut the borders – um, so I think there's now a new group arising. And uh, you know, as we say in the book, sometimes these groups form by accident, these networks of, of powerful. And I think we've, we've seen that very thing happen. Some old groups have rearranged and we now we have uh, a lot more corporate and political interest in maintaining some kind of health panic situation. Mm. Um, so, so I think that's where the, where the Game of Mates element I think is is most relevant to what we've been seeing. So we need a big group of Bruce's, which perhaps is what's mm. been happening in Canberra and these places, right? I think we are seeing a dynamic change around the world. I am nowhere near as optimistic as thinking that a large group of Bruce's is now <laughs> awoken and will, you know, storm the ramparts. I think it depends a lot on what the economy is going to do in the next few years. If If that's going to ramp up again, then, you know, the panic will gradually die down. The, the winners from the panic will count their winnings and will get away with it and will slowly leave the scene with their winning and you know other others will try and look for opportunism and there will be no justice or, or anything significant. Um, but if the economy keeps on going down, if the repayment of the huge debt that's been accumulated means that public services go down, if there is no swelling of the migration inwards, if... Um, the disruption in child education translates into lots of disruptive adolescence. Um, if uh, you know the, the the neglect of public health means lots more health problems and the mental health problems become more visible, 
uh, and we're sort of uh, economically further in trouble, then I see a gradual increase in the reform movement in Australia, a gradual interest in becoming citizens again. I mean, and yeah. this is the thing I, I have sort of wanted for Australia for the last 20 years is for the majority of Australians to think of themselves as a co-owner of the country. And they don't yet, right? They, they don't. They, they think that voting once every three years is all you need to do, and for the rest, you, you worry about your barbecue. Um, mm. But no, th there is a responsibility of being a citizen. There is a sort of a, a, a need to think about uh, what your country should look like, how it should look like. Are things acceptable? Are things not acceptable? And what one can do about it? Uh, and for various reasons, that has not been around. And so there's this huge apathy, this huge um, norm and habit of just, you know, following orders and seeing compliance in itself as something good. doesn't matter what the compliance with Correct. is with. Correct. Right. And that has got to change. And I don't see that change in a hurry. I only see that change after uh, years of heartache and tremendous downturns and that might well be exactly what's on the card now you know years of misery which will slowly mean the population wakes up um but only after being abused quite a lot more i think oh, i tend to agree uh being a good citizen now uh seems to boil down to those three word catchphrases that we've spoken about save the planet black lives matter wear the mask get the vax <laughs> And this is not about how you be a good citizen. This is, it, as it, Paul said, it's responsibility. Uh, okay, Gigi and Cam will just finish up with maybe uh, your economic analysis of what you think is going to happen short term and maybe within the next five years, ten years. Well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm actually speaking about exactly that tomorrow at a, a conference in New Zealand, and it's nice that I got invited, so people are increasingly interested in, in hearing about this. Um, one of the biggest things that's changed with COVID, of course, if, if you look at Australia's economy, is the immigration flows have, have uh, dried up, right? And and I think the politicians have realized, ScoMo certainly has realized, that he needs to get that back if we're going to continue to, to basically take the place that we had been playing before in, in the international economy. But the problem is that we have seriously damaged Australia's appeal overseas. So if you are a student or a tourist, potential tourist overseas now and you look at how Australia has handled COVID and what it's done to the people who aren't citizens and even the people who are citizens here during that period, it's pretty pretty sobering. So I'm dubious that it's just a matter of simply resetting a particular cap and people will be falling over themselves to come in and, and we can, by virtue of setting that cap, determine how many come. I think we're going to struggle to attract the same level of not just immigrants, but tourists and students and whatnot that we did before. And that has, of course, huge effects in the longer run on the economy because we're not then bringing in those new ideas, the, the innovation, the, the free human capital, the skills that those people bring because we have a skilled immigration program. And so our economy will suffer from that. Uh, we'll also be busy paying back the debt. And if inflation that seems to be rising overseas ends up creeping in over here, um, that's going to put a lot of people in serious strife with their home mortgages. And, it, you know, it's it's not a pleasant you know, situation to be in, whether you're a homeowner or a, or a business investor. Um, also, you know, of course, no, I mean, you, you worry about what's going to happen in China. Are they going to continue to buy our iron, <laughs> you know, buy the stuff that comes out of our ground? I mean, that, the natural resource part of our economy, you know, will suffer if the worldwide economy just slows up and they stop building things. So, um, and the labor market, of course, is another area that you have to keep an eye on. And it's very, very complex what's happening now, right? There's, there's scarcity, worker scarcity, but there's also, um, the sense of, of kind of lack of motivation of workers to go to work or to, you know, they're thinking about doing something different. Some people are withdrawing from the labor market. Some people are reducing their jobs, uh, their amount of hours. And you worry about young people cracking into the labor market who, you know, just have been disadvantaged during this period because they can't access the, the networks that normally are used by people who are just starting out on their careers. Um, so, and of course, the disruption to schooling that we've, we've already spoken about. So there's an awful lot of disruption in the labor market, which has to kind of work its way out in order to be able to, you know, to be able to make a prediction on, on how that's going to go. Um, and of course, the immigration also affects the labor market. Mm. So um, those are the areas that I'm watching. What do I think is going to happen? I, I kind of, I mean, I hate to be so cynical as Paul, 
Um, but I, I, I do think that it's probably likely we're not going to, you know, certainly not going to see the bounce back that we were initially sold as being possible no, no, after no. lockdowns. I don't think um, that's cynical. That's being it's uh, just, realistic. It's right? just realistic, right? And uh, so it's going to be a bit of a long slog. Yeah, Cam? Oh, I, have a, I have a slightly different view. I'm, I'm fairly optimistic. Um, and there's a few reasons to say that. One, the labour market's recovered quite a lot um you know unemployment is very low i've you know i know a lot of people who have been looking you know to change careers and get new jobs and now they've got the opportunity um i think a lot of the inflation that's it sort of due to the disruption of the global sort of supply chain and the you know the, the microchips and the the vehicles etc uh, a lot of that, if you look at the pricing, has peaked. You know, we had the big scare about lumber prices in the US and construction prices. You know, the latest data seems that that's sort of peaked. And and the thing that suggests to me the next few years will, you know, travel pretty well is uh, the Commonwealth Bank came out at the end of last year and they said their, their average bank account has $11,000 more in it than it did before COVID. So all that... You know, the, the, the flip side of all that public spending is it's now in someone's bank account mm. and and people will spend it. And I, I think when, when borders open, I know personally I'm waiting to get some flights, you know, to take the family on a trip. Uh, and I know plenty of people are just waiting for the opportunity to spend on those things they couldn't spend on. They got money in the bank. Um, if you look at mortgage debts, people have been paying them off at record speed with these low interest rates for two years uh, with limited travel. So, um, you know, I actually think, uh, you know, we've we've had most of the economic damage and I think once we're able to get on with our lives and we'll, we'll do that very quickly. Cameron Murray, Gigi Foster and Paul Freiters have been my guests on the Nick Holt podcast today. You can find the two books we discussed, Game of Mates and The Great COVID Panic, on Amazon and all major bookstores. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Nick. The Nick Holt Podcast.